0: Listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at SojournFairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of His Word. Philippians 2 5 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. If we haven't met, my name's Mark, and as Justin has done the last couple weeks, I'm in the second game of the doubleheader, (laughs) preaching this morning at RGC and this afternoon here, and it's a joy to be sharing this Advent series with you. 2020 has been a year of unexpected things and surprises and um, one of the unexpected and delightful things has been the possibility of joining together uh, our two churches becoming one and um, it's a pleasure to be here with you on the uh, almost the last Sunday of the year and just uh, wanted to say we're uh, excited to keep praying and and talking about that whole process with you and I also wanted to just reach out and say, if any of you would uh, like to get together and uh, have a conversation about that, I would love to meet with you in person or uh, Zoom, whatever's convenient. Uh, feel free to email me. Or maybe just one of your things, you could send out my uh, contact info. But it's, it's first initial, last name, mmullery at rgcfairfax.org. So uh, please reach out. I'd love to to have a conversation with, with any of you just, just to meet and get to know one another. And as we... Um, are here today on December 20. This is message number four of five in our um, Songs of Advent series. Uh, The fifth message will be our Christmas Eve service uh, on uh, Thursday, and Justin will be uh, preaching uh, under the title of Joy to the World. And um, this passage, uh, Philippians 2, um, I was thinking this week, this is like a favorite restaurant. You know, you have a favorite restaurant where you can just go back over and over, and you never get tired of it, and it's always just something amazing there. That's what Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is, is like. So I'm grateful and excited to be able to um, have been studying this this week and, and bring this to you, whether you're here in person or whether you're uh, watching online. And I just want to pause and, and pray and ask the Lord's help here. Oh God, we quiet our hearts now. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge our need for your presence and your help right now. We have this moment with the word of God open in front of us. Eternal things can happen. We might see and delight in and be conformed to the image of Christ in a new and fresh and deeper way. But there's no guarantee of that happening. We need your help So we lean in, we ask that you would draw near to us now, fill us. We pray for a work of enlightening, a work of beholding, a work of seeing as I go through this text. Let us see the glory of Christ. I know you love to bring the spotlight on him. Do that now for his glory and our good, we pray. Amen. Well, as we are in this uh, Sunday, the last Sunday before Christmas, I wonder what's what's got our attention as we're uh coming to this day and this this coming week. And I know for me it's just so easy to slide into this week and into Christmas Day with my attention, even as a as a pastor, it's easy to be just filled with all kinds of busyness and thoughts about presents and and um you know time off and who we're going to be with and what we're going to eat and and you know vaccines and viruses and family that we might see or might not see or might see electronically instead of seeing in person this year and it's just i find so easy to slide into christmas without really being stirred into the incredible realities that christmas points us to and that's one of the reasons i'm so grateful for uh, this advent series it's been a gift to me personally and i hope it has been to you too and as we as we come into this uh, text and into this, this uh, almost Christmas day, the Sunday before, before the day we remember the incarnation, I just want to remind you of some of the things we've been hearing. We heard from Luke 2, the angels, uh, the angel declaring, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, right? So we fit inside that, right? And what is that good news? What is that news that, that promotes great joy? Well, it's that the Savior has been born, Christ the Lord. And then Simeon in the temple, holding that baby that he's been waiting for for so long and saying, Lord, you can bring me home now for my eyes have seen your salvation. He sees this little person, Jesus, and he says, this is salvation. The Savior has come to us. In a moment, we'll sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and one of the lines in there is, Late in time, Behold him come. So I want to just ask as we get started today can you see him? Can you grasp him with your mind's eye, with the eyes of faith? Can you see the glory of Christ? Because Christmas, as we know, isn't ultimately about Santa Claus or presents or food or family, but it's about Christ coming into the world as the greatest gift ever. Christ coming to save us from our sinful rebellion against God. Christ coming to pay the price to set us free from guilt and condemnation so that we can know God as our Father. We want to remember what he did, but we also want to remember why he did what he did. The Gospels do this wonderful job of giving these stories and helping us see who Jesus is and what he does, but I want to just ask today, what brought Jesus from heaven to earth and from there to a cross? What was his thinking? What was his mindset? What was his attitude? You know, you might ask a friend, hey, what do you have in mind for the party? And when you say something like that, what you're saying is, I want to understand sort of what your intentions are. What are your plans? What, you, what are you thinking about? So we want to ask today, what was Jesus' mindset? What did he have in mind in the incarnation? What did he have in mind at Christmas and coming to become one of us? What was his intention? What was that plan or attitude that resulted in the incarnation? And then what would happen if that way of thinking and living became our way of thinking and living? I know of no song that works its way through those, that way of thinking better than Hark the Herald Angel Sing. And that's the reason for the title of this message. And I know of no passage of scripture that sort of gives us a, a peek inside the mind of Christ better than Philippians 2, 5 to 11. So we're going to ask three questions of this passage here this afternoon. First, what is the mind of Christ? What is it? We'll spend most of our time there. Second, how can we have that mind? We're invited in the text, called in the text, have this mind among yourselves, which which is yours in Christ Jesus. Well, how? How how can that come about? And third, what difference can that make if we actually develop and engage and embrace that that mind, not only as individuals, but as a congregation? So first, what is the mind of Christ? Christ? That's the invitation here. Have this mind. That's the call, the claim here. Have this mind. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? If, if one of your kids asks you, if you've got children at home, hey, mom, dad, what, is, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? If you're talking to somebody that doesn't know who Jesus is, when they ask you, what, what is this? I saw in the, this, this thing, the mind of Christ. What is it? How would you describe it? How would you define it? So what we're going to do is we're going to move through Verses 6 through 11. So I want you to buckle up. Put your seatbelt on because these are densely packed, fast-moving verses. This is verses 6 to 11 are probably an early Christian hymn. May have been adapted by Paul for for this passage. But verses 6 to 11, they move faster and it's a wilder ride than any roller coaster you'll ever be on. Verse 6, check it out. Verse 6 starts in eternity past right? Before creation and up to the incarnation. Verse 7 is Christmas. It's the incarnation. Verse 8 is Christ's life on earth up to his death on a cross. Verses 9, 10, and 11 are his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and enthronement for all eternity. So it starts in eternity past. It moves to Christmas and the crucifixion and then on to enthronement and eternity future. If you can describe eternity that Way And that all happens in six verses. Parents, if you want to explain all of history and all of eternity in six verses to your kids, here you go. Six verses. If you're talking to somebody who isn't a Christian, you want to try to explain redemptive history in six verses, here it is in short compass. We get a a window into the mind of Christ, especially in verses 6 and 7 and 8, and especially through two words. There are two key words in this passage that, that are like pulling back the drapes and and letting the light of the mind of Christ in. And those two words are these. The word empty, he emptied himself, verse 7. And the word humbled, he humbled himself in verse 8. Christ is taking the down escalator from God to man to death on a cross. Why? Why does he do this? What is the mindset, the attitude that leads him in to living this way and doing these things. So let's look at the mind of Christ. Verse 7, look with me back there, please, at, at the, the text. So I'm reading from the ESV. I'm actually reading, uh, I, I, I've got the, so the ESV, there's two editions. The first one is the one that I have in front of me. and It actually says here, He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being for, born in the likeness of men. Now, If you're reading the second edition, which you probably are, it may say he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And if you're reading other translations like the New American Standard or the NIV or the New Living Translation, there are a a wide variety of how verses 6, 7, and 8 are translated. And there's a good reason for that. Because here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul is trying to describe the infinite God using finite language. And it's very, very difficult. And, 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 and that's how, what it is when we engage this, this great and infinite God. And so what he says here is in verse 7, he emptied himself. Now, to understand what that means, we've got to do a little bit of work. We need to understand the scene and the setting. So to get the scene for the implications and sort of the starting point of, the, of he emptied himself, we need to back up to verse 6. So look there with me, please. Look at verse 6. It says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form, important word, the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. So I want you to think about that with me for a moment. The scene is eternity past. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dwelling together in sort of this, this happy land of the Trinity. And the second person of the Trinity, just like the first and the third person, They're all in the form of God. Christ is in the form of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in the form of God? The Greek word there is morphe, from which we get the word morph or morphology. And so the morphology of something is sort of its its characteristics. So I have a background in forestry, so I'll tell you about maple trees. Okay, what's the morphology of a maple tree? Well, maple trees don't have pine cones, do they? You know what they have? In the spring, you see them. It's those little helicopter things that spin around. In the spring, those are called samaras. And they don't have needles for leaves. They have a leaf that looks like the palm of my hand. It's, pa- it's a palmately veined leaf with these lobes, like in between my fingers. That's the, those are the essential characteristics of maple trees. Okay, That's the morphe, the morphology of a maple tree. What's the essential characteristic of God? Remember, apart from the incarnation, God doesn't have a body. So we're not talking about essential characteristics of a head or arms or feet or hands. What are the essential characteristics? What is the morphe of God? Well, God is infinite. God is glorious. God is without a beginning and without an end. God is wise. God is present everywhere. God never changes God is holy. We could go on. And so Christ Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, has all these qualities. He's in the form of God. He has all the essential characteristics of God. And then he does something that's never happened before and will never happen again in history. He doesn't count those qualities as something to be grasped, but he empties himself and takes on the form of of a servant. That Greek word is the word doulos, servant. If you were living in the Roman Empire in the first century and someone said there's a doulos, they would be pointing out to you a slave, a person without rights or privileges, a person who belonged to another person. And Jesus takes on those characteristics that morphe that form of a doulos though in the form of God he empties himself he sets aside those privileges to be born in the likeness of a human being to be born as a as a as a man as a person like us and born in the form of a servant in other words he sets aside those divine privileges. Now we've got to think carefully about this. When it says he empties himself, does that mean like you pull the, the plug in a drain and all the water goes out, it's not there anymore? Well, it can't be because he continues to exist and he continues to exist as God. And so this emptying doesn't mean he disappears. What does it mean? Well, without becoming less than he already is, God He takes on something that he hasn't been before. The creator becomes a part of the creation. So think about it not so much as himself pouring himself out so there's nothing left, as as it is pouring him into the form. He's emptying himself into the form of a human being. Let me try to give you an illustration. This is a a flawed illustration. There's no illustration that can sufficiently capture this. But there's a guy in our church named Kweku Opong. a delightful guy. He is a husband, he's a father, he's bright, he's funny, he's articulate. It's been a a joy to be a a fellow church member, to to have him in in, in book clubs and and, and so on. He works for FedEx. So when he goes to work, you know that purple uniform those guys wear? He drives and delivers packages for FedEx. When he goes to work, he pours himself into the form of a FedEx driver. And that's what he does for a while. And then he goes back to doing other things. Jesus pours himself into a human form, setting aside his glories. We're going to sing, Mild he lays his glory by. That's one of the best lines ever penned. Born that man no more may die. He doesn't lose his glory, but that glory is veiled. It's set aside for a time. He becomes one of us in order to save us from our sins and bring us back to God. His attitude, his mindset is to set aside his advantages for a time in order to do something that no one else can do. To bring us the advantage of transitioning from being alienated to God to being adopted by God. We'll sing God and sinners reconciled. The only way for God and sinners to be reconciled was for God to become one of us. And for that to happen, he had to lay aside those essential characteristics for a time. To empty himself and then humble himself and take on the form of God of a human being. And so that's the second verb that we're going to look at. He empties himself and then it says he humbled himself. Look at verse 8 with me, please. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Is God humble? talking about the God-man here. And it says he humbled himself. Does that surprise you? God has no sin to repent of. Jesus never has any sin to repent of. He never has anything to apologize for. He's never humbled as we are sometimes by our bad behavior. He's never humbled by doing really poorly on a test, right? But the son of God humbles himself. How? How does he do that? Well, this word humble means to make low. So we see in Luke 3, 5, this verb, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, shall be made low, shall be literally humbled. Philippians 4.12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be humbled. Matthew 23.12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, made low, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So God the Son not only humbles himself, but then there's an incredible word. It says he becomes obedient. Think of that. God the Son. Who does he obey? He obeys his parents. You can read about that in Luke 2. He obeys Caesar. He pays his taxes. He obeys God the Father. It says the Son can do nothing of his own accord. He says he only does what he sees the Father doing in John 5. And incredibly, wonderfully, Jesus obeys the law. He keeps the old covenant law perfectly. He fulfills every Command every requirement of that law. He loves God and neighbor perfectly and without fail. Why? So that at the cross, He can not only take away our sins, but He can impart to us all the righteousness of that perfect law keeping. His obedience is a wonderful and glorious thing for us. And how far does that obedience go? It's not just in keeping the law, but we're told here he's obedient to the point of death. You know how obedience works, right? We're all in different situations where we're under submission to someone or something and where we need to obey, whether that's parents or military or government or tax paying or whatever it might be. And it's always fun and easy when we like what's going on, isn't it? And the test always comes when it's something that we don't agree with, don't appreciate when it gets hard. And Jesus obeyed all the way to a dreadful, humiliating, excruciating death on a cross. He trusts and obeys the Father that far. Here is the mind of Christ. We see it as he denies himself and takes up his cross. Here is the mind of Christ. Christ Humbly serving others for the glory of God. See, the mind of Adam was very different, wasn't it? Adam's disobedience brought sin and a curse. All these troubles that we have in the world came through one man's disobedience. And you know what? There's no vaccine for that. There's no vaccine that will set us free from that disobedience. It lives in us too. But Jesus comes. And his obedience brings rescue to all who will come to him. Romans 5, 19. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What is the mind of Christ? Here's, a, here's an inadequate definition, but it's the best I can do. Give it a, give it a try and improve it and let me know how you, how you can make it better. The mind of Christ is his mindset or his attitude to set aside his advantages and humbly serve others for the glory of God. He, he takes what, it, or what are his rights and privileges and he says, I'm going to set those aside in order to do something in obedience to the Father, which is bring salvation to us out of a desire to bring glory to God. So it's the mindset or attitude that he has to set aside his advantages and humbly serve others for the glory of God. He empties himself into humanity. He humbles himself to death on a cross for our salvation. What What is God the Son like? Here is a window into his mind, into his way of thinking. He doesn't use his power and his privilege in a selfish way. How often do we see this in our world? It happens all the time. You see somebody become the ruler of a a country. You see somebody get a position of power in a company or become in charge of a company, and they use that position for their own advantage. They use that position to get rich. They use that that position to take vengeance on uh, on their enemies. They use that position uh, for, for their own personal gain, and they grab everything they can for themselves, and that is not the mind of Christ. But Christ, out of a heart of sacrificial love, gives himself up for the rescue of his rebellious creatures, people like us. It's no wonder we sing glory to the newborn king. Doesn't your heart rise to this? What a great God. What a great king. And none of this is lost on the father who has now highly exalted this one who emptied himself and humbled himself. Do you know what the mind of the Father is about the Son? Well, we heard it in this passage. Let me just read it for you again. Verses 9, 10, 11. Therefore, because God the Son humbled himself, emptied himself, now God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. His glory was veiled but not forever. It will be revealed to every creature who's ever lived. He is the highest and the greatest And the one who is worthy to be worshiped. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let this Advent season freshly bring the glories of Christ before us so that we can join in the eternal chorus of bowing the knee and giving praise to him. So I want to ask if the mind of Christ is to set aside his advantages. Set aside his rights and privileges in order to humbly serve others. It's that mindset. How can we we have that mind? We're called to in this passage. Verse 5 Have this mind among yourselves, which is literally yours in Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. You, church, have this mind. It's written to a church. Have this mind. You all have this mind. How can we do this? How can you have the mind of Christ? Well, the bad news is you can't. It's impossible. You can never get there. You can't make yourself get there. Left to ourselves, we don't even want to get there. Left to ourselves, we all embrace a gospel of self-interest, self-gratification, self-fulfillment, and self-exaltation. Left to ourselves, nobody's taking the down escalator. We're going up as fast as we can. And this is exactly what Jesus comes to save us from. This is why Christmas is such good news. Because there's a way out from living like that. He comes to take the consequences of our mutiny against a holy God. He comes to give us new life. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. 2 Corinthians 8 verse Nine, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He took the down escalator so that you by his poverty might become rich. How does Christ make his people rich? Well, in Christ we are rich with new hearts. In Christ we are rich with new desires to love and serve and know and follow God. Christ enables by the power of the Holy Spirit this new work to begin in us which God has begun in all who are believers and will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How can we have the mind of Christ? We can be born again and start over with a whole new set of desires. And this is something that not only happens to us, this is something that we participate in as well. Chapter two and verse 12 of this letter says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This God works in us and we participate. There's a part for us to play. And I wanna encourage you today, take this Advent season, take these days leading up to Christmas, And call out to God. Ask him to give you the mind of Christ in a deep and and growing way. Ask him to reveal the glories of Christ to you that you might behold the mind of Christ in this wonderful Savior and press on to know this Jesus, not just to know about him, but to know him, to know him in his sufferings, to know him in his glories, seek him out in scripture, sing of him in songs, meditate on what he's done in, as we sang, cradle to cross, Pray over these things. Talk about these things with others. And then just bring this one question into your life and into your week. What would it look like if I had the mind of Christ right now? If you can bring that into Tuesday, if you can bring that into the next conflict that you have with somebody, if you can bring that into the next time you're on your device, if you can bring that into your life, it will be transforming. What would it look like if right now I could have the mind of Christ? It's a, it's a transforming work that the Spirit is doing in us step by step and day by day. And what difference can this make? Oh, you see this in people in Sojourn Church. Isn't it lovely when you see this happen in people around you? You see this in the way people around you are living. You know, you see this when... Foster parents open up their busy lives to welcome in another child. You see that there, don't you? Someone adopts a child. I see it in people like missionaries that I know, Dean and Denise Adamek, who've been serving the Lord their whole married life in Mexico. They lead this orphanage that our uh, teens visit every, every year. They gave up the advantages of life in this country in order to bring good news to to impoverished and at-risk and orphaned children in Mexico, you see the mind of Christ in that, don't you? You see it in a, like in a group of teens that are hanging around, and you know, you, you see this mind of Christ when one of those kids gives up the advantage of hanging out with the cool kids that all know each other and like hanging around, and goes over and, and starts engaging that one person that nobody else seems to care about. Or taken interest in. You see the mind of Christ in that, don't you? You see it at work. It's the end of the day. Everybody's getting ready to go. The email comes in, and somebody's going to have to stay late to work on it. Hmm. Who's going to do it? Crickets, right? That's one of those moments of what would happen if we could say in that moment, Lord, what would it look like right now for me to take up the mind of Christ? And you know, this works out in church. This is actually a call not to individuals to to manifest this, though we are to do that, but it's actually a call to a whole congregation to live this way. Verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The reason this church in Philippi needs the mind of Christ is they're being persecuted. The church planter, Paul's in jail in Rome. There's fear. And in times like that, churches can splinter and, 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 and people can, can distrust one another and begin to pull apart from, from one another. But this counsel to have the mind of Christ is, is a wonderful tonic for disunity. It calls us and pulls us and holds us together. You know, churches that have the mind of Christ can hold together no matter what. By the power of the Spirit, churches that have the mind of Christ, we can learn to count others more significant than ourselves. That's what we're told in verse 3. By the power of the Spirit, when we have the mind of Christ, we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's verse 4. When people in church set aside their rights and their advantages and seek out the interests of others, churches hold fast against all kinds of trials and pressures. Churches can hold together no matter what when we have the mind of Christ. When we do that, we can stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel no matter what. That's one spectacular difference this passage can make. If we can have the mind of Christ, it can greatly deepen and preserve the unity of our church no matter what happens. But that's not actually the application I want to leave you with today. I want to leave us pointed in one other direction. And that's actually the direction the passage goes after verse 5 into verse 9. When we see the mind of Christ, if you can get a hold of this, and oh, how I long to get this deeper in my soul and more active in my heart. When we can see how he emptied himself, laid aside his glorious privileges, humbled himself, obeyed the Father to the cross all so that he could become our Savior. He did it for us and for our salvation. When we see this, do you know what happens? We join the Father. We follow the Father's lead in worship, don't we? It, it just pulls out worship. We want to praise and honor this great and glorious King. So we bend our knees in worship. We lift our voices in praise. We want to tell God, but we want to tell the people around us too what a great king and savior this Jesus is. This Lord who's coming back into the world and is our coming king. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Got a knee? We want to bow that knee before our king tonight. Got a voice? Got a tongue? We want to confess with our tongues. We want to lift our voices and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and Savior and worthy of everything we have because he gave up so much to bring us to God. So what we want to do before we sing to our great king is we want to close by remembering him through the Lord's Supper. If you didn't get the elements on the way in, there's a table in the back, get them there. Sometimes at Christmas time we sing, let every heart prepare him room. He's come to dwell in our hearts by faith through the spirit. And I don't know about you, but I find there's competition in there, isn't there? as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, we want to remember how Christ emptied himself and humbled himself and went to the cross for us, rose again, and will return one day for us. I want to just ask, before we receive the elements tonight, if we could take a moment and just ponder and ask for the Spirit's help, what's, what, what's the condition of our hearts tonight? What's in competition for first place? What's competing? What's what's pushing the glory of Christ out? I find so many things are in competition in my own heart. And one of the reasons I love the Lord's Supper and I love the Lord's Day is it's just this great opportunity to slow down and remember what's most important and repent and turn away from things that that are secondary or or third importance that push their way up to the top. This is a great opportunity to set our affections freshly on Christ and to ask the Spirit to help us to freshly behold Him. And so when you're ready then, after some time of reflection, feel free to go ahead and take the elements when you're ready. If you're here watching or you're present and you're not a follower of Christ, you're in a great spot. We're so glad that you're here joining with us. Thanks for understanding that this is a family meal for Jesus' followers. So we want to encourage you not to take the meal until you're a follower, but we want to encourage you to take this time to consider why Christ came and what Christmas is all about and to consider that one day he'll come again and we will all confess him as Lord and King then. And maybe would you start? What would keep you from turning to him and calling on him now? 1 Corinthians 13. When Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture. To see your glorious mind, that you would not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but would lay aside your glory and privileges, empty yourself, take on the form of a human being, humble yourself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We remember that all tonight, and we say thank you. And we ask for your help, that you would be first in our hearts, in our affections, in our thoughts, and in our minds. And as we receive these elements, we remember this isn't just something that happened in the past, but this is a great hope that you will one day return to be with us and to be our king. The new creation has begun and we're part of it now and looking forward to its consummation on that day. We thank you. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info@sojournfairfax.com. At Go in peace.